Good day, my friends, and welcome to the new Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand made famous by Martina Hingis, John McEnroe, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. Today's guest was born and raised in northern Michigan, and alongside his ambidextrous serving brother Luke, won the 1993 French Open, from then on became center court mainstays. Their carbonated personalities and blood, sweat, and tears style cemented them as fan favorites. He has remained prolific in tennis, first as a TV personality, and is the longtime coach of World Team Tennis's Washington Castles. But what he has most recently done to help people struggling with addiction is by far his greatest feat. Murphy Jensen is today's guest. Are you ready to rock, my man? Press it. Listen, man, I, I feel like the last time I may have seen you, I was like barking out your name, driving down Montana Avenue in Santa Monica, and it was probably four or five years ago. I think the two of us have lost track of time. That's got to be could be 10 15 years ago. no 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 shot no shot no you're in a time warp you know you there's a time where i had hair and you didn't now you have hair and i don't <laughs> right you're so crazy we're um, living in an alternate universe where the toilet bowls go the other way the gentleman you hear is the 1993 french open doubles champion uh, that he he won that with his brother Luke uh, Murphy Jensen, my man, my man. It's so long to see you. Rock, rock and roll tennis has arrived. No, but you listen. Show. You're like, but you're like in a whole nother level now. I mean, this is going to be one of the great interviews. I mean, well, let's hope so. You've changed a lot of stuff. You're you're doing a lot of different things, and I'm not sure that people really know the significance of of uh, just how you flipped that script. Um, my man, it's really good to see you. Uh, you always bring a smile to everyone's face. So, uh, as you may or may not know, we do a five set format. The first set Ooh. is the off the court report. What I want to know is that. Are you so you have you are in Seattle. What has Seattle. the last fifteen weeks been like for you? We're about week fifteen of the pandemic. Well, I tell you, it all really started here over in Kirkland, Washington. I live here on Lake Washington, so if I look right uh, north, I'm going to find myself in Kirkland, and that's where the hospital and the senior living homes uh, first identified the pandemic, and people uh, started dying. Uh, and personally, I, uh, I think this people started getting, uh, COVID-19, you know, months before it was really identified in the U S. Um, so Seattle went on lockdown first, we are one of the first places to go, uh, on lockdown uh, for a number of reasons. All those, uh, uh, flights to and from you know, Australia, Southeast Asia, you name it. Uh, I think our, our town did a really good job in locking down. And we are a huge city with companies like Microsoft and Amazon, you know, a technology city. And so even though we were on lockdown, the city kept running because um, of the engineers and developers and those kind of, that industry is able to work remotely really easy. Oh, I, but what you just said before that about, the international flights to, to China and to Asia um, are very significant coming out of Seattle. So you think that they were more sensitive to shutting everything down in terms of social distancing and locking things down pretty, pretty aggressively? I can't speak to New York, but San Francisco and, and Seattle uh, respected uh, the pandemic and what it could mean and and they were quick to do it and the streets were barren and 
you know, I, our offices, my company's offices are on the uh, 33rd floor of the Wells Fargo building right downtown, huge one of those skyscrapers. Mm. And uh, I think if I remember correctly, uh, it was detected that one of the floors had, you know, COVID-19. Someone had, had been on it and it was infected. Yeah. And so luckily we had already started work from home prior to that. Have you gotten any exercise? Are you doing any barbecues? Are you seeing any people? Are you just locked in at home? You have a young child, I believe as well. Yeah. Yeah. I have a 20 year old son who is a going to be a junior at Seattle university. He's on the tennis team. And, and it's great that he, he grew up in Southern California and as well as Florida down at the IMG Academy. And so to have him so close to here is just a, a treat. But when, when school shut down and he went back to Florida and to hang with his mom, and I also have a two and a half year old, that's what keeps me busy. I'm chasing a two and a half year old and he's boogieing down to Panda, Panda, Panda. And we're watching all these kids movies up and down to the beach, to the house, to the beach, to the house. We're playing with Tonka trucks. I'm a, I've gotten really into uh, walking. And if you want to know my tennis exercise, the wall is my friend. My wall is a place that I clear my head and I get right with uh, the, without sounding too weird, uh, the rhythm of the universe. You know, if I'm out in front, uh, on the wall, I'm out, usually out in front in life. Um, but if, if I'm playing the late show, you know, I'm, I'm not going to uh, get the results with the wife, with the life, with business, with my baby as a human being. So I want to be out in front. So the wall, wall clears my head. Murphy Jensen getting deep on the wall. If you're out in front hitting the ball in the sweet spot, then you're feeling like that's your whole universe is – is is on time is on the money yeah i think for a tennis player uh any tennis player especially me i i found, fell in love with tennis on the wall and i learned to measure my shots i learned to measure what was appropriate behavior and wasn't appropriate behavior um and and it's hard to beat the wall it's just hard to beat it it's always coming back can't beat and, the and wall. There's, there's got to be a metaphor uh, for life in there, but I'm not alone. A lot of people find therapy and solace in the wall. Let's move into our second set. This is the. Did I the, win it? Everybody's a winner here, baby. Okay, good. This is the on the court report. I would like you to share your perspectives on what's going on since Indian Wells canceled. You are a forever member of the ATP. You are less active than you once were, but you're still a, a member of the tennis community in a meaningful way. Uh, Indian Wells canceled, but really the last two weeks we've had the U.S. Open turn on. We've had Joker and Dimitrov all catch the virus, and I'd just like to—I'd like you to share your perspectives on what's going on in pro tennis the last couple of weeks. Well, my perspective on what's going on in pro tennis is that. Nobody quite knows tennis or non-tennis how to how to navigate what's uh, this virus, um, whether it's business, the country, the world. So if we break it down to the tennis world and how we get tennis up and running again, uh, I think it's still a big question mark. My opinion on on what happened in Europe and how we got Dimitrov and Djokovic now with, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, have been infected by the coronavirus. I don't know if that's the proper term. Yeah. Um, they're obviously not alone. There are millions that have been infected by the coronavirus. And to think that we're going to play in front of stadiums is off the table for a little while, I think. I, it's hard to feel optimistic about even the even the the stadium free tennis with people coming in from all over the world. Even like golf got everything's getting people people seem to have it and people are getting it. Yeah, I I think what it's what happens between you know just look at any human being's home. You know, we have a nanny, and then I have a work partner that comes over on Tuesdays, and we're taking 
taking a calculated risk. There's going to be calculated risk that the tennis world is going to take. World Team Tennis, I think, is the, the hottest ticket in town right now because they'll have 200 hours of tennis over a three-week period played from one location at the Broadmoor. They're going to be super respectful of distancing. They don't need umpires. They got the computer-generated line calling. It's going to be televised. I, I think what's super important is what happens between matches. Are you partying, you know, going out, hitting the town, the clubs, socially? I think it's got to be really hard for the youngsters to admit these are super strong athletes. And I can tell you from my own experience at 24, I thought I was bulletproof. You know, they, 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 they train to be bulletproof. They train to, yeah. to, to be able to play D, yeah. you know, cover that court and get one more ball back. Into, and, and, and it's really easy. Our heads and our egos will think that, that this couldn't happen to me. Let's move into our third set. Woo! This is the portion of the show where we talk about your career. And you and Luke are Michigan players, man. And we have a mutual friend who I actually get to practice with from time to time, Amy Alcini. And she told me a lot about you guys. Where, where does your tennis really begin? Wow. Uh, I, I say this. Uh, uh, we grew up on a Christmas tree farm in northern Michigan. And that's the stone truth. I remember probably my, one of my first memories is three or four years old, going out and cutting, cutting down our own Christmas tree. And people would come in and, and do the Christmas tree thing. So your parents, the way, are in the, your parents are in the Christmas tree business? No, someone uh, no. leased the land to, do the, to build Christmas trees. So we were stealing Christmas trees at the age of three, the Jensen but, brothers. But, you're, but you guys lived in, like, northern Michigan. Did yep. you, li- but you guys are from, like, near Grand Rapids? Well, two hours north of Grand Rapids is a, a town called Ludington, a little south of Traverse City. Uh, by the by, middle school, uh, we ended up in uh, needing to move to Grand Rapids for tennis opportunities. In Ludington, there were no indoor facilities. We built a tennis court in our backyard, but the introduction to tennis happened on a, on a salmon street. Dad rolls home from work. He was a, a school teacher, and he pulls out this net, and I go, Dad, what's that? It's tennis net, son. I go, what are we doing with that? He took that net, set it across the river to keep the salmon from going upstream so we could catch these things. Hence my love for fishing and salmon and stuff like that. So, oh, come on. So the first tennis net you saw was to block the salmon from going upstream? Hand to God. Oh, Hand to God. Hand to God. And we would run out there with nets and fishing rods. And, just and hang on. And who's older, you or Luke? Uh, Luke is two and a half years older. Okay. He just celebrated a birthday, uh, June eighteenth, and uh, and and we, um, and, we're and in and, Alaska. And, but when did <laughs> when did you guys start hitting balls? So our dad was the high school tennis coach. Oh, he was. He was the high school tennis coach, and the reason he he played uh, football for the New York Giants back in the days of Sam Huff and Y. A. Tittle and those fellas. And there wasn't any money back then. And I, they're barely wearing helmets, I think, those leather things. And <laughs> he went off to play in Canada because he got an opportunity to start. And he was, a, he was a great athlete. He met a guy from Arkansas who summered in this town. Now, we had moved closer to town uh, near the lake. And people summered there. And they brought their tennis rackets. And this guy by the name of, name of Buddy Williamson gave my dad a tennis lesson. And my dad, hence, he gave him a racket. We built a court in our backyard. Literally, we cut the trees down, my brother and I, or my dad cut the trees down. We hauled the the logs. And then we made a a concrete tennis court, cut to, uh, in the, we just practiced, we just played all day, every day. And we had a wall. My dad was the high school tennis coach. We were, I was literally tethered to the net while my dad would play. And we were pounded into the submission by the high school kids. And we were tough because these high school kids are the little Jensen kids. And the way my dad would make his lineup was he would have a six to 10 mile run. And whoever came in first played number one singles. 
because nobody could play. He was teaching from scratch and he would bring out tennis magazine and, and we would take chalk on the court in our backyard. And we, we were all learning together. The whole city was learning tennis through my dad. I got it. First, I got to ask about Luke. What's so the story Luke, behind the amb ambidextrous serving? Dad's, ma Dad's madness was to have us play tennis for our footwork for football. We were always going to be football players, but tennis was going to be great cross-training for our football <laughs> careers. In the seventh grade, by the time I'm 11, I'm playing nationals. By the time I'm eight, I play Mal Washington in the finals of the state championships, 10 and unders when I'm eight at Kalamazoo Stowe Stadium center court. And this lady in the semis was screaming, cheering for my opponent. And I told this lady to drop dead. Turns out it's Todd Martin's mother. I mean, we had such a rich, strong group of kids like Amy Alcini or uh, – Amy Frazier, we had a ton of great players. So cut to, we go even further in. We went down to Grand Rapids because they had indoor facilities. The wall wasn't cutting it. Dad knew being a pro athlete that there was going to be a breaking point where he can only teach us so much from the magazines. So we moved in with Don Dickinson who saw my brother throw with the left hand. He's playing right. I'm right-handed, play left. Luke's left-handed, plays right. And he saw Luke throw a football 60 yards, and he's like, holy cow, I wonder if he could serve both hands. So Luke just started developing that serve. So you guys basically started getting good from a young age. And like you said, there was a lot of good tennis players in Michigan. Ramblewood, that's where Don Dickinson, that's yep. where you guys got really good, though, huh? She, yeah, well, that, it was that, described to me like a, almost a bowl of Terry situation. I don't know anything about this Don Dickinson and, yeah. and this Ramblewood, but you guys got really good there. Is that right? Yeah, so that's where we got our first taste of organized, high level. And, and Voluntaries obviously was the first alongside Hopman with those tennis academy type environments, but to do it in Michigan, and he, had, he came from a basketball background where my dad loved him was that it was all about fitness. We might lose the match, but we're not gonna lose because we weren't fit. And so Don Dickinson, basketball mentality, fit, fit, fit. We then transferred over, Don moved to Arizona with his academy. We moved over to the east side of town to uh, East Grand Rapids, Michigan. Brian Marcus, who played on tour, who lost everyone, including Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith. I got my Stan Smith shoes down here. And then we just kept getting better and better coaching, which eventually landed me personally in Mount Washington, living in the basement of our house in East Grand Rapids with Victor Amaya as our coach. Oh, really? Why is Big Back such a great coach for me? He's 6'8", lefty. I'm 6'4", lefty. He taught me the big man's game. And he coached Mal. He worked with everybody in Michigan, but he was now in my hometown across the street. And so not only did our game elevate, so people to say, I've had this coach for my whole life. I think you can always keep learning. I, from that experience, I kept getting more science and more knowledge from these teachers and coaches and mentors. And Luke was the best junior in the world at some juncture. Singles and doubles in 84. Yeah, so... What was it like to have a front row seat for that? Um, were you guys like competitive and would fight each other? And uh, or was it more like the way we see? I always saw you guys always was so like pleasant um, and so like in such good moods and things like that. But what was it like to have that front row seat for Luke in 84? Well, that was incredible. He's on the cover of Tennis Magazine as a yeah. junior player. He yeah. was, you know, and it was just shy to the players turning pro. My generation, Sampras and Agassi, turned pro out of high school. His generation was Patrick McEnroe, Richie Renneberg, Jim Grab or whatnot. And they went to school for a year or two. Luke, in 84, was given a lot of endorsement money, but a full ride to the University of Southern California Tro Trojans to play under Coach Leach with Ricky Leach and all the superstars on that team, you know, was a great deal. But you guys, you guys didn't overlap there, or you did? No, so he, no. he goes he's two years ahead. He yeah. goes two years. He's the number one player in college tennis real fast. 
and turns pro. I come in, he just turns pro. Um, it was, and I'm there at USC for two years. I followed in his footsteps. I'll tell yeah. you, going back to 84 and all that, our family, you know, just worked really, really hard. And were we competitive? You're dang right we were. I mean, even on tour, he'd have me in a chokehold. You know, he, I, I didn't care as much about beating my opponents as, as it, it, I, it mattered to me more that I outplayed my brother because my brother oh. was the standard. He was the standard. If I could beat my brother, who was the number one junior in the world, I could beat anybody my age. I mean, the guy's a beast. When did you start drinking and, and having sort of like what, you, what I guess I would describe as kind of problematic behavior? When did you start to kind of do that? Because the way I read it was that college kind of was the place, of course, for all of us where those kind of things can happen. Yeah, so... You know, for those that know my story, don't know my story, I'll start with, uh, I'm a person in long-term recovery today from substance use disorder. And in 1987 to 89, I went on to USC. My brother goes on to turn pro and it's his first two years on the tour. And so here I was in Los Angeles, California, a million miles from Michigan, Playing on a team that was undefeated, third, some crazy winning streak. The worst player on the team was on the Mexican Davis Cup team, like yeah. Jorge Lozano, who's a top 50 player, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. And so I'm coming in. My brother played number one or two, or he and Ricky switched back and forth, Ricky Leach. And I'm playing five and six. And the feelings I felt, the, I had guilt and shame and embarrassment to call home so I'd been number one in everything up to that point. I was a top junior. I won the Orange Bowl twice in dubs, top four in the world in singles. I, I knew how to play. But, I, but so did everybody else on my team. And a year before with Luke and Ricky, they were the great, one of the greatest college teams in the history of the game with five guys that ended up being in the top 50 and winning Grand Slam doubles. They're all very, very good. And so it was at that point, my grades went up, but – I, soaked, I, I, I found, sought solace and comfort through the social life. Being the party the guy. Yeah, I found, I found the fraternity life. And it was, it was drinking, which most people do. You know, they have their beers, and, and most college students have their beers and, and, and chase girls and things like that. And, um, and then it was sophomore year at USC where I – where I crossed the line and I was uh, introduced to cocaine. And the moment I was exposed to that drug was the moment that I should have known that it wasn't for me. Um, and it was a few months later, I knew, and I wasn't an everyday user and drinker, but that is what took cut me at my knees and the if I had a feeling of less than or shame or unworthiness, I really have it now. You know, alcohol for me was a depressant. I just poured poured fuel on on that fire. And I knew if I had any chance at this point, Pete Sampras wins the US Open, Andre Agassi's, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread and Andre is my doubles partner in juniors. And I thought to myself, if I had, if I want have any chance at, I didn't know I had a dependency then because it wasn't all the time, like every night, uh, but it did cause problems with me on the team. And now I'm barely making the team. I'm playing six and seven. I go, you know, it, it was rough. And, and Luke wants to know what's going on. My mom and dad want to know what's going on. And then I transferred to Georgia. And I knew that I had to, I had a short window to get myself healthy, which I did. Played for the Georgia Bulldogs with my old friend, Al Parker. We win, we end up, you know, doing really well, making the centimeters as a team in the NCAAs. And in the drinking and a little using occurred there, but it was really about getting shaped up to get shipped out to the tour. I turned pro shortly after. I was an All-American at Georgia. And 
I worked my butt off and within two years were French Open champions. And it was my first French Open we ever played uh, that we won it. That year of 1993, we started training back with Don Dickinson in Tucson, Arizona at the Sheraton El Conquistador and we trained like dogs and we suffered. And we rolled into Doha, Qatar. And my brother says to me before our first match against uh, Javier Sanchez and Diego Nargizo, Murphy, the beast must eat. We lose that match, 7-6 in the third. We go on to Sydney, we make the semis, quarter of the Australian, and we win the French. Really fast trajectory to top five in the world. And at the time, I'm ranked like 100. My brother's ranked like five. Our combined ranking's 105. And that year was just magical. And I... And they coined us grunge tennis. But I can tell you when it comes to substance use disorder, um, it's not about the drink or the drug. It was about the feelings associated that after winning the French sitting in the locker room, when, when I don't know if tennis fans know this, when the tournament starts, that locker room's packed. You know this. But at the end, it's just you and the guy you beat or the doubles team you beat. And I sat in there after winning the French, and we, I closed out my service game. And, and we're down 3-0 in the third, in the finals. And my hands were shaking. And I, I had like a, 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 a feeling of fear overcame me in that moment. And because on the outside, in that moment, I'm the best in the world. In that moment, my brother and I are the best in the world. But on the inside, I don't know what that's called and what that means, but on the inside, my insides didn't measure up to what just occurred. And now I've got to like put on this face. Yeah. And you were the best at it, man. I got to be honest. Um, when, when I learned about all this pain and suffering that happened to you, I have to say, as somebody that was somewhat on the inside, I never knew that you were in that kind of pain. I mean, you hit it from the world. Yeah. I think well, in a in a pretty in a pretty significant way. I, I think it goes back to. Um... You know, if we get, if we accomplish this, then I'm okay. If we get there, then I'm okay. And here we've got this. And I'm, there's this kind of turmoil inside. And so now we're cooking. And we signed a deal with Adidas, rock and roll tennis, grunge tennis, Bud Collins, the, I think, 94 US Open, the, the World Cup year, and we're wearing the soccer jerseys or the football jerseys. And we became this, and it was at a time where Pete Sampras, there was the cover of tennis, uh, Sports Illustrated that said tennis is dead. And we were these guys that were bananas from northern Michigan that played high energy, that just fought like crazy. And now I got everything that I thought that I wanted in life. You know, I, I, so, so a little celebrity, little money, um, a little success. And I, I felt empty, yet at the same time, this train was moving at a speed I couldn't slow down. So what, you just so started hitting the nightclubs, doing drinking, so, hitting the coke? Yeah, I got exposed to a hell of a lifestyle, number one. And number two, when I had time to myself, that's when I went off the rails. And so, I, there, so when I think about addiction, um, it's a disease of isolation. I would be standing on grandstand with the whole place going bananas and then go back and, and Jensen brothers. And I'd go back to the hotel room and be a so alone, feel so alone. Right. And so it was when drinking was one thing that led to, I, I didn't know, but I became addicted to cocaine the day I, I tried it. it. It is a terrible drug. It was for me. And I don't know anybody, not one person that says, man, that's a beauty. And what kept me going back to that was probably that first experience, me chasing that feeling of being checked out of the here and now. So cut to, you know, missing, starting to miss some events, not showing up for certain matches, 
Um, yeah, I read that you you missed a, a match at Wimbledon. Is that, did that happen? That'll be in the book. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I did miss a match at Wimbledon. I was out with James Brown, uh, <laughs> you know, the, gospel, the godfather of soul, and Belinda Carlisle. And I'd seen a show, and I'd been invited to their show, and I'd been out all night, and I and I wasn't in any condition to show up for for my tennis match, um, physically, mentally, um, and and the truth is, I was the truth is I was dying, and I didn't know it, and I didn't know what was wrong with me, why I would go out with the boys to have a beer like everybody else, and that the the end would look the way it did. And then it would physically harm me. Where does and, and was this like a was this like a was this like a, a well kept secret on tour that you were fucking up, or was it or was it not a secret? <laughs> well, um, I don't. You know, I was to, be t to tell you the truth. Um, I wasn't an everyday drinker or user. Right, right, right. You would I just was a periodic. Snap. You were I, binging. I, I, yeah, I was a binge, a binge drinker, a user. I don't even know if that's the appropriate term, but I would get some time from the tour yeah. and then I would disappear for a couple of weeks. It was when it started crossing over into my tour life where the rubber met the road and, and it was in Philadelphia. I'm playing at the Spectrum and, I'm, and I see on TV a story about a basketball player that used to play tennis at Maryland. And he was the number one draft pick in the NBA. His name was John Lucas. And his story was my story, except he was a basketball player. And so I reached out to this guy and it was actually a therapist. I went to my first treatment center uh, through the recommendation of a therapist. I went to Hazleton Betty Ford in um, Minnesota, and I was there less than a week. I was so afraid of being found out, because mm. think about it, at that time, yeah. you know, there was, there's still is such a stigma that I'd have lost all my endorsements. You know, if I had shown up with cancer, they'd have given me a, a parade. Yeah. But substance use disorder addiction, there's that stigma that says that's a moral failing. And I had to keep it a secret because so many people in my life would have been affected. My, our mom was the manager, our agents, our, all that stuff. My brother is my doubles partner. And there were a few people that could probably tell that I took things a little further. But on the general, right. you know, my performance went down. And um, Well, you never achieved the greatness of the, of the – you never got back, like, really – your tennis never got better. Well, yeah, it, it was a, it was definitely a, a, a downhill slope, but I don't, uh, I don't point it all towards my substance use disorder. Mm. I also think we were managed in a way that we were um, the first doubles team, I think, to get appearance fees at the major events, not majors, but, you know, certain tennis events that yeah. for doubles guys to have, the clothing contract, shoe deal, watch deals, guitar deals, the months, car deals. Um, it became more about we we're we're responsible for kids' days on the ATP tour. Hundred percent. We appealed to the kids. We appealed to. Um, we sold tickets. Everybody plays doubles, and then you have these high flying rock and roll, fun, super competitive guys. And in New York, it's a tough crowd. If you get New York to love you, the world's going to love you. And New York didn't care if we won or lost. They just like to see us bleed out there and suffer and, and put the hurt on somebody. And they love that. Um, but I, I will be honest with you. It was when I crash landed in Los Angeles in 1999 with the birth of my first son, Billy. And I was in a hotel room. I found that I, once I started, I couldn't stop. I couldn't predict the outcome. And the hotel manager, instead of calling the police, he called an interventionist. And that interventionist asked if I'd be willing to get help. And I don't know, and I had sliced my foot. I was physically unrecognizable to myself, and I was spiritually empty. 
all I've been hearing is, is that you got the baddest company there is in this, that you are doing some very special stuff. And I know you began talking about it, but if you could, ex and I heard that there's like some super heavy hitters that are, that you rock with right now. Can you tell us what exactly has happened with this? Well, the company's name is We Connect Health Management. And uh, my co-founder, Daniela Tudor, I met through me being of service and helping another person, helping another person in, in early recovery. My mother-in-law, I asked if I would help a family friend who was in an, who is in an intensive patient program, outpatient program. And I took him to a support group meeting and he said that I needed to meet uh, this gal who built uh, system, systems engineering teams for companies like Microsoft. And we got together, she brought me a piece of fish, nice piece of salmon. Same. She showed me my first wireframes and she, while in treatment herself, was told that the relapse rate was 85%. And being someone from the tech space, she realized that two things as she journaled, what were the drivers of relapse, which is lack of connection, we connect to the key stakeholders in your recovery and lack of accountability to a care plan. When she was discharged from a 28-day program, they handed her a piece of paper. And, said, and it said, these are the 10 things you need to do for the rest of your life. Right. You're back out on the street. Within 30 days. So You got no shot. No shot. No, no shot. No accountability. No, no shot. Uh, connection. And, uh, and you're out there basically uh, with untreated alcoholism or substance use disorder. And, you know, it's really hard to walk in to that first 12-step uh, meeting or support group meeting or therapy session and admit that you've got a problem admit like i did that i was defeated and surrender and being an athlete the word surrender or give up was not in my language it was fight until the end and and against the disease of addiction you know the stigma is that that it's a moral failing and family and everybody is affected Every community in America since the opioid epidemic has been affected. And alcoholism goes back to the beginning of time. And we have so much more information and so much more data points. So Daniela's idea was to leverage technology. These phones are with us 24 hours a day. How can we build a, a, a framework that's going to support anybody's recovery. It could be eating disorders, alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, substance use disorder. So hang on. So, so you guys made an app. So it's a four-pronged, uh, it's an end-to-end -end solution, starting with a patient-facing mobile application. It's in your phone, your care plan, digitized. And what it does is it has all the people that are going to support me in my recovery. It could be my sponsor. It could be my therapist. It could be my primary care physician. Uh, we've got the second prong is a data dashboard for those key stakeholders to see when Murphy's getting off track. And there's a risk score algorithm associated with it. So we can trend of a thousand patients who's at most risk and why. If there's someone with 10,000 days in recovery and they missed a few support group meetings, his risk score isn't going to be the, as high as someone with 20 days in recovery and missing three or four meetings, right? And bro, you're doing incredibly meaningful work. Oh man, it's personal for me. You know, I, I'm able to help people exactly like me. Um, and you said- build their life restore their sanity like you know and you said that you hundreds of thousands of people are utilizing the program yeah and then the third the of the the app the dashboard we uh have a peer services you know technology can support you but it'll never replace human connection you know the in in, in during COVID 19 and the internet we're all doing our zooms and our meetings over but it will never replace me seeing you and giving you a chest bump that the Bryans took from the Jensen brothers uh, and saying, what's up, Craig? It's really great to see you. I love you, man. And so that's where the peer services are. They are actual people that can text message you onto the app and give you 
some suggestions to, and, and support along the way. And the last one is these virtual meetings and over 200,000 people have attended in the past 60, 70 days. Which and we're so, I'm so proud. And, and I think, let me just sit backward, uh, backtrack a little bit. My dad passed away maybe eight years ago and he was a member of Al Alcoholics Anonymous. And he got sober when I was like eight or 10, which changed the trajectory of the life for my brother and I and our sisters, right? And when he passed away, I knew he could go to, I saw a man could go to sleep safely knowing that his son, Murphy, could take care of things. That I was showing up for the, my obligations, that I was, you know, uh, showing up for my responsibilities and that I, and that I had, something had shifted and, and it, it's taken a long time to get to this place. And I'm, I'll tell you what, Craig, I don't know, but we all know somebody. Why do they keep repeating that behavior? Why? And, and they have no more idea than you do. And it takes an entire community family hostage, this disease. And at least it's now being labeled as a disease as opposed to, you know, Murphy's just a screw up. Um, 100%. I'm so proud of the work that my team, our company is uh, upwards to 70 employees to date after six years. And we're growing within health plans and uh, health insurance companies as a benefit to, to the members that they're going to get this added support and this tool. It's a digital therapeutic to help you stay on track. And it's, it's really the most rewarding work of my life. No French open trophy. No. I was going to say Murphy Jensen from Christmas tree chopping to, <laughs> to tennis net, uh, catching salmon to the French open. Yeah. To Robin Gibbons to, to, to one of the most meaningful things I've, I've heard about a pro tennis player ever doing. Well, Bro, I got to tell you, I don't know you as well as um, others, but I'm proud of you, man. That is unbelievable. Thank I'm proud you, of man. you. Well, my phone, for anybody that listens to your great show, um, you know, I get phone calls every week. There are two things I get. I get ex-players or ex-athletes asking me how I made the transition, because when the playing days are over, what do we do? How do I reinvent myself? Or that phone stops ringing for endorsement deals and exhibitions. And how did you do this? The answer I have for that is go out and help somebody. I started being of service starting with the Tennis Channel. I got an opportunity. I had never hosted a show before. I went with the Castles. I was of service to Mark's team and his players. I was in coaching. They knew how to play. And I, and I got a level of trust. And through that service, I became, I was teachable again. It was like being a junior player. I, my ego was never my amigo in active addiction. And so this process has humbled me and right-sized Murphy to be teachable and coachable. Um, and then the second call I get is, whether it's from in any sport or any walk of life, I get the call that my brother's in trouble, my sister's on life support. Um, that's real. That's real, Craig. And that's, um, that's, this is, if there, it's the big amigo's work. This isn't Murphy's work. This is all the big fella. Um, and I know my dad's real proud of me. And that's what makes me feel good. I sleep well at night. Let's move into our fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. Uh, you got to focus in now. This is tennis. It's quick. There is no deep dive. I say it. It's word association. I say it. You say what comes in your mind. Your favorite tournament. Luke Jensen. French Open. French Open. Your favorite city. Paris. Your favorite court. Could be any court in the world. Whatever Monte court Carlos you played Center great. Monte Carlo Center Court. Monte Carlos on a court. There's nothing like Monte Carlos on a court. Pretty nice court. I'm, I like a, I'm a water guy. I like Pietrangeli. Where's that? Italy? Yeah, the Rome, the court without the statues around it oh, in Rome. Yeah. yeah, where they throw the coins at the players. Yeah, where they throw the coins at the players. <laughs> uh, your favorite racket? Oh, man. Prince Graphite. But I'm a Wilson guy. So the Fed. In today's modern, I won the French with the, with the Graphite. But I've been a Fed guy since Fed. Picked up whatever the Fed racket. Grip size. Four and five eighths. What's, well, how do you string your racket? 
Not tight and not super loose in between 50 pounds both ways or 50, 46. Um, and I do the Fed. I do whatever Fed does. Think about it. If there's a problem with my, his, his weight, his balance, his strength, if there's a problem with my game, I can't blame it on the racket. He seems to make it operate. So, On court coaching. Not cool. Not, I'm not Off court coaching. Coaching from the box. People yelling and screaming down from the box. I th- I'm okay with that. Big entourage or lean and mean? Lean and mean. But speaking of entourages, Luke and I, our entourage in the players' box in center court, it was Louis Armstrong at the time, was uh, we picked up eight nuns from the street from Queens, and they came and prayed for us because we really needed a win. <laughs> we were losing points. We didn't want our ranking to drop, so we brought nuns in, along with Gloria Estefan and some, some movie stars. <laughs> You can't make that up, man. You just can't make that up. True story, actually. You can't make that up. Dear God, help me win this match. <laughs> Murphy Jensen, your best win. My brother. He's my hero. Well, I has always been and will always be. Your worst loss. Pete Sampras at the age of 13. I'm up 6-0 in the final set tiebreaker at the 12 and under world championships, and I lost to this chump who went on to become a pretty good tennis player. <laughs> Hang on a second. You were up six six zero in the third set breaker. Where was this? Uh, in Cota de Casa, California, uh, in uh, at Disneyland. And they had uh, Vic Braden had a tournament there for all the young kids. Jared Palmer was there. Michael Chang, Jim Courier, Sampras, Agassi, me. Uh, I had a really good group of juniors in my crew. Um, and I was, I think it was the semis in a 6-0 in the third set breaker. And he was a year and a half younger than I was. So there's no reason I shouldn't have. I just choked. I just totally choked. I, and there were other worse losses. I had a 6-0-5-1 lead at Stanford playing for USC that I blew it. I, you know, um, and those folks that say, you know, your losses, losses are lessons to get better and learn. Uh, not when you're up 6.05.040 love. That's a lesson to uh, hang it up. Let's move into our fifth and final set. Woo! This is the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket, no aggravation, what would it be? You know, it's it's nice to be removed from the game a little bit like I am today because I can have a different um, perspective, perspective. Yeah. Uh, from 10,000 feet in the rainy city of Seattle. I, th- I love, there's no reason why the tours shouldn't travel together. I think the alphabet soup of ITF, ATP, WTA, and all the different governing bodies gets in the way of progress for the game. Um, I think if anything, from a, a business point of view, I think there needs to be more money put into the challengers on the way up to afford the travel to get to the show. The show is where the dough is. But you know, the same $50,000 challenger is paying $3,000 to the winner and $150 to the first round loser. 150 bucks doesn't even get you um, you know, a uh, hotel room for a night today. So I think it's very difficult. I think there, we need more money in the lower, lower, uh, the, the minors, for lack of a better term, you know, the challengers and future. You got to drop the money. You got to combine the tours. Raise, I, raise the money for the lower tier tournaments. And, and bring uh, the, I mean, we hear that a lot. I mean, in order for the, the other thing, what, what about appearance fees? I mean, it seems like appearance fees have spun out of control and they have killed the 250s. They killed the small tournaments. Well, you know, the smaller, let's say the smaller uh, tour events, you're saying. Yeah. Yes and no. I, I, you know, a player like Novak and Roger, they're only going to play the tournaments they're going to play. They're going to play their Super Nines. That's what they're called, the Indian Wells, yeah. the Miamis and the Romes. Um, and they're going to play the Grand Slams and a handful of others. Uh, you know, I, I, I really think that uh, – and, and players that make it to the show in the Grand Slam, losing first-round singles and doubles, I think if you lose first-round singles, doubles, and mixed, 
of all four grand slams, you'll make upwards to 750. Losing all four first round in all three events for the calendar year. That's that's a lot of dough for losing first, first, and first. That's good dough. You know, and so um, I think the appearance fees um, are good uh, at those tournaments. Let's say it used to be the San Jose tournament, yeah. the Cybase, or the Memphises, or the smaller, the, the $500,000 mm-hmm. tier, because it can draw an Andy Roddick or an Andre Agassi or a Pete Sampras. LA Open, I think sponsorship, I think the biggest change, and this is for real and it hasn't changed, is I wanted to see when I was playing in the 90s that it, you weren't in the doubles unless you're in the singles. And now that would have forced me to go back to the challengers and play singles and get my singles ranking up. But imagine if we had this generation with Roger, Rafa, Joker, Murray, playing singles and doubles for one ranking. So you never do it. And then if you're talking about equal prize money, equal prize money, gold for gold, mixed doubles. If you had equal prize money for mixed, you're going to get some big dogs playing. And the doubles is so good. Even last night, I watched Madison, Keys, Vika play Kennan and Bethany Maddox, and uh, it was great tennis, man. Oh, man. But they're crossing, they're moving, they're ripping. Yeah. Yeah, the the talent is just so good, man. Like, if you get those hot, those, you get the top tier players playing the dubs, there's nothing like that. I don't know. Yeah, you got to pay. You got to get the money even. Even like a gold for a gold. I go to the Olympics, you know, and I'm a skier, and there's four events gold for gold. Gold is gold. Yeah. Murphy Jensen, man, I got to tell you. I, I had a precursor to what was coming from you today, but I didn't know exactly what it was going to be like. It's very moving story and the best stories come from pain. And I'm glad that you, you seem to have found your way out of it, man, which is incredible. Yeah. Murphy yeah, Jensen. Incre- I'm so grateful <laughs> you, uh, you let, let me be a part of your show. I had heard about it for, for a couple of years now. And I was so excited that uh, I've always been impressed by your work and, you know, I was really uh, quite humbled that, that you, you uh, wanted to have a chat. So. I love you, man. Murphy Jensen, you are released. Woo! Huge thank you to Murphy Jensen. And if you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, please see what he is doing at WeConnectRecovery.com. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.